There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny and Act Two of my chat with the brilliant Dame Harriet Walter. She is by the side of the stage. She's ready to come out. She's got something she wants to get off her chest. She's things she needs to talk about. Here she goes. The lights are going down. Stage lights coming up. Here is Dame Harriet Walter, Act Two. Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, we have the house for Act Two. Mr. Cake and Ms. Walter to the stage, please. This is your Act Two beginners. The trouble for actors is that we actually do get old and have to play. You know, we might feel sort of in some ways ageless, but in fact, you know, there are external facts about the way people see you that mean that you've got to play someone of your own age. And therefore, you have to play the prejudices about people who are mm. of that age. Mm. And I'm getting a lot of scripts about people who are dying or have got Alzheimer's or are very <laughs> set in their ways and very rigid. And a lot of things which I trust at the moment, I'm still not. Um, and, and yet, there are very few plays which show somebody getting on with life being a bit older. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But don't you think theatre is also a kind of brilliant time machine? It's very flexible with how we think about this person on stage, as opposed to a camera close-up, which is unforgiving. Yes, yes, yes. No, you're right. There is a real sense that actually, if you bring on a kind of, which you do, this sort of extraordinary internal age... Yeah, yeah. We can sort of believe, we'll believe anything. Well, theater. actually, you know, if you can believe women are men, then why can't you believe somebody old is young or somebody young is old? Uh, yes, of course, theoretically, it's very possible. And look at you. You, you, you. you look absolutely We're in a very ageless. dark room, listeners. <laughs> you are live. You've got this extraordinary quality of sort of energy, sort of defined energy. And you look amazing. I think this is turning into a sort of me trying to sell <laughs> and to possibly take a commission for this engagement. I don't know. Perhaps there's a part for me. I don't know. Perhaps I could. No, probably not. Um, look, let's, let's get off that tantalizing idea. <laughs> can I quickly ask you? You might be sick of talking about this. Can I ask you about Rudolf Nureyev? <laughs> Never sick of him. Yeah. Is it possible, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know who Rudolf Nureyev was, is it possible to describe him briefly? Yes, I was shocked about 20 years ago when I said to a young actor, you know, that I was besotted with Rudolf Nureyev and they looked blank and said, who? It's always that first moment in your life when you understand that you're of a generation that yeah. is very familiar with certain people that younger people don't know yeah. and vice versa. I haven't a clue who all the people they worship are. 
But anyway, uh, Rudolf Nureyev was a peasant from Russia, really. He came from a very poor family in the far east of Russia. A Tartar? Was he yes. a Tartar? I think legend has it that he was born in a railway carriage. Um, and he lived not far from a railway line, and he used to look along that railway line and be aware that there was a world out there. And he ended up incredibly rich, world-famous, international superstar with houses in America, Paris, London, you know, whatever. As a ballet dancer? As a ballet dancer. The greatest, one of the greatest ballet dancers of But not technically. Ah. I mean, I sort of disappointed my balletto man grandmother and mother because it wasn't his dancing, his footwork, the height he could leap to that, that really made him so great for me because plenty of other dancers have done greater things technically. It was his spirit. It was his intelligence. It was his musicality. It was his, his whole story. His acting. His ambition to get from that little village yeah. to where he got to. He did a runner in the early 60s. He was on tour with the... It was all such a chance that he got... You know, they, I think they tried to stop him being part of this tour to uh, Western Europe at a time when people from Russia weren't allowed to travel. And he slipped through the net in Paris and, and defected. Yeah. And it's a fascinating and extraordinary adventure, you know, and that in itself was kind of mind-blowing. Plus, he was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's hard to describe how smoulderingly extraordinary-looking he was. So beautiful. And with this physicality, I mean, his, I remember his was fringes of my consciousness when I was growing up, but he, he was unavoidably famous... Um, when I was a young boy. And I remember as a sportsman being so struck by his physical form. I mean, he was such an unbelievable looking athlete. And I think sort of certainly in the Royal Ballet up until then, you know, the male tradition had been rather sort of slick backed hair, sort of rather effeminate, very much the backdrop to the prima ballerina who was the focus and they kind of held them up and twizzled them round and you know obviously had to do it I'm not diminishing the skill that they took but they were not the focus and Rudolf swept on and changed the chemistry really so that he became either the the focus or totally matched focus with Margot Fontaine as a couple Mm. they were kind of like the Burton and Taylor of ballet, you know. And, Stair, and, Ginger Rogers. And, and I saw them, you know, as a young person. I was, you know, very, very lucky to see them. And I was even luckier to get to meet him. Well, could you possibly <laughs> bear to tell that story? I will, but I'm sure it's been told a million times. I'm sure I've told it to every interview I've ever had. But he came to see a play I was in, in Paris. What was that play? It was The Possessed by Dostoevsky in a version of a crazy director from Russia who was very highly thought of called Yuri Lyubimov. Yes. Yuri Lyubimov. Yes, he did a famous Hamlet. And yes, and he he came over here and then sort of wasn't allowed to go back to Russia. And he was already quite old by that time. And he was a mixture of total dictator and, and very charming and very exciting to work with. And we took this production to Paris. And in the audience were all the sort of Russian emigre population of Paris, including one Rudolf Nureyev. And um, as soon as I got wind that he was in the audience, I went slightly freaky. 
And um, <laughs> the company manager said, oh, well, if you like him, I run his show at the Coliseum every summer and, you know, um, I can get you in to see it. And so I rang her in the summer and said, did you mean it? And she said, yes, and you can come backstage and watch from the wings because it's sold out. I just have to get his permission. <laughs> so she went to him and she said, you know, the girl who played the blah, blah in, in The Possessed, you know, would like to come. And they say that it's not a miracle that you meet somebody. It's a miracle that they meet you. And I think that's right. Uh. So he remembered me from the play and said, yes, she can come. And this is the person I had on my bedroom yeah. walls, my school walls. You know, this was the reason I became an actor, I think, mm. because he had a power of exteriorizing his inner life through music and through dance, which just I related to so strongly. Th there I was in the wings while he was rehearsing, practicing, and I said, is that him? And she said, yes. And she said, I'll just tell him you're here. And I almost went, no, 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 don't, you know. And then she came back and said, he wants to meet you. I mean, unbelievable. <sighs> you cannot imagine what that, you cannot imagine what that was. And so I had a totally meaningless, silly conversation with him. <laughs> I never, ever said, you know, I've worshipped you all my life. I just sort of had this very flippant, light conversation with him. And then throughout the ballet, it was Swan Lake, couldn't be more classical. Throughout the ballet, he would come off into the wings and have a little chat <sighs> and then go back on. That is the detail that I love so much about this story that you're not watching him as an audience member. You're sort of watching him almost like a member of the, his cast. Yeah, yeah. He comes off from doing one of his 14-foot vertical <laughs> jumps. Except that it wasn't, because he was um, coming up to 50. Right. And he was already, though we didn't know it, he was already HIV positive, I oh, think. Oh, gosh. But he, he wasn't as powerful right. by any means. Right. And people had said he should have stopped long ago. Right because he was embarrassing right. himself. Oh, and the tricky thing was that when I went backstage afterwards and said thank you, I began to say that was wonderful. And he was one of those people who absolutely didn't smile, didn't he wasn't charming to me. He oh. was just very sort of straight up. And I got the impression that he was saying, you can't have thought that was wonderful. Oh. If you thought it was wonderful, you've got no taste. Do you know what I mean? Wow. It was like I wanted to say, well, I know you've done better and yeah. I don't care. To me, the whole thing was extraordinary. Yeah. But he sort of did a sort of kind of when I said it was brilliant, Gosh. as if to say you don't know what good dancing is. Oh. Do you know? And I couldn't explain. I didn't have long enough to sort of right. put myself in any context or, or be me. But it was still unforgettable because I just stood in the wings and, you know, I was so familiar with his dancing. I was so familiar with the way he walked, with the way he, everything about him. And there he was in front of me and the music I knew and all that. And I just wept. And I said to myself, you know, I, I sort of wanted to tell my 11-year-old self, my 14-year-old self, my 17-year-old self, you get to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on in there. You get to meet him. You get to meet um, him. You get to be there when he comes off stage and have a little chat. Just unbelievable. It's that chat in the wings unbelievable. that I find so extraordinary. What an amazing thought. Because that, that 11, 14, 17-year-old didn't have an easy 
entrance to this thing. You, 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 you know, one of the, my modest hopes for this podcast is that anyone starting out might find stories like this a little bit helpful or instructive. You auditioned for drama school, mm-hmm. five different drama schools, and were re- rejected, rejected by all of them. Rejected by all five. Yeah. And what's so extraordinary is that, well, I got a place at Oxford to read modern yeah. languages, and I turned it down because I wanted to go to drama school. So even though I'd been offered a place in academia and been rejected five times, I carried on. And what was it, do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's a total mystery because... This sounds really weird, but I had reason to look back in a diary of the year that I auditioned. I hadn't even thought that it was the year I auditioned, but I'd been to a place on the globe that somebody said they came from, and I said, oh, I've been there, and they said, you can't have been there. Nobody's been there. And it was I, Richard E. Grant it was and Swaziland. Richard E. Grant and Swaziland. And I said, oh, I promise you I have, and I had to go back to my 1969 diary to check out where it was in Swaziland I'd been to prove to Richard E. Grant that I had been there. And I suddenly got, and I haven't written a diary very much, but this one was sort of more comprehensive than most that year. A lot was happening. And I had a page for every day. And I found this footnote after I'd auditioned saying, you know, turn down again or something. But I just know I will make it in the end. I don't know I'll make it in the end, but I put it in such a way as I just have great belief. I don't know where it comes from. And I put that in my diary. I have great great faith that it'll be all right. I don't know where this comes from. And in every other area of my life, I was quite a shrinking violet. Not sort of coy, but just sort of a, a, a modest idea of my place in the world. And I'm not that good at this, and I'm not good that good at that. And I'm not very beautiful. I'm not very pretty. That I'm not fishing for compliments. I wasn't. And I, did, I had no reason to think I was special or would get anywhere. And yet in that area, I just had this sniff that this was where I belonged and what I could do. She persisted. She persisted. And the following year, which shows how much confidence and experience does, the following year, because I'd done a lot of acting that year at Cambridge, funnily enough. I didn't go to Oxford, but I I hung out in Cambridge Hmm. with a then boyfriend who was at the university. And I did a lot of plays there because... There weren't many women in the colleges in those uh. days. And so there were lots of free parts going for women. And I did a lot of acting. And that got me the confidence, which I think is sort of, I don't know what percent, but it's a large percent yeah. of what differentiates between an actor and somebody in the, you know, who's walking past now. And that is just this confidence that they can get a message across or speak to an audience or whatever. And I developed that in that one year so my diary in 1970 was whoopee i got in you know amazing these these internal voices that somehow keep us going it's so indefinable isn't it you know i have no idea why your friend philida who calls you harold um (laughs) said that you had this is why she leaned into the microphone and said harold if you're listening to this it's true you did say this you apparently when you were working on the all-female trilogy you said to her early on don't worry if a director has a clue it's a bonus <laughs> do you have any memory of that absolutely no memory okay, of saying that good do you do you do you, do you think it's hard to find directors who have a clue i've been pretty lucky with the directors yeah. i've worked with 
they're all different. I think they're all quite paranoid about one another because they can't watch one another work. They don't know what it is that the other person does in this secret room. Oh, yes. Whereas actors see one another evolving their work and demystifies the whole thing. What a great point. Unless, of course, they assist. Unless they assist. Which they That's true. And most most of the directors I work have assisted a director, but but maybe only one or two. And they all do work differently and they all do have different properties and qualities. What I love about Philida and, and what I like about Rebecca Frecknell, what I like in general at this stage of my career is I like people who have got a, a visual and spatial clarity that I, as a pawn in the picture, need them to transmit to me because I don't, you know, we are of necessity self-involved and involved in our own character and our trajectory. And I don't like... On the whole, I don't like directors who mess with my head and tell me what I'm thinking and feeling and what something means, because I hope I've done that work already and and I'm quite good at that. I mean, it's helpful at the beginning to have that kind of guideline. But if it's not coming across, you know, if they say, remember, you're angry with your mother and you go, well, I know that and I've been playing that, I think. So if what I'm playing is not communicating that, that's your problem. You must put me in a place on the stage where that is communicated well, or you must get the other actor to do blah, 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 so that it becomes clear. I can't do any more glowering or, you know, thinking I hate my mother. Do you know what I mean? I'm just saying, I like directors who have an outside vision and can be, if there's such thing as in loco parentis, in loco audience, and tell me what they're getting. And if it's not getting to them, then... I like an, a director who knows how to tweak that thing and, and, and get it to happen. But you don't like a director who's interfering too much with your internal process. Not, not after I'm up and not after we're sort of into rehearsals and I've, yeah. you know, unless I've got something very wrong. Yeah. And they can say things like, you know, they can tweak things, of course, but, but from an exterior point of view. So I actually quite like directors who say louder and faster. Right. Because, yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't like, directors who say who remind me what I'm thinking because I'm already thinking that and if it's not communicating to you then I need help communicating it I don't need reinforcing of what it is I'm supposed to be communicating have you ever had a process where you were going in one direction and a director has managed to persuade you that you should really 180 degree turn around do something else someone who's helped you in that way I've had help, or, you know, most directors have helped me in lots of ways. I don't know about a complete turnaround because right. I got it wrong. On the whole, I tend to sit on the back foot and wait until it's become clear what the director wants. I'm a bit like that. I'm a uh-huh. bit of a sort of, you know, I do need a parent in the room. And I like sort of sniffing out what it is that's needed and and then kind of trying to fit into that picture and then finding my own freedom within that picture. Uh-huh. That's kind of my process. I'm not really a leader. I'm a very much a collaborator. And, a, you know, it's reinforcing what I said before about uh, uh, an ensemble. Usually, usually, you know enough about how the production is going to be when you have your, in, your chat with the director so that if you were going to be at real odds with that director, you, w- you wouldn't accept the part, right, I think. Right, right. And that's happened to me, which is heartbreaking when it's a part you really want, but you just think, I don't think this director's going to do it right. how I want it to be done or how I could fit in well. Right. You know, so you say no, and that can be quite hard. 
Are there times when you can remember feeling at your worst on stage? Have there, have there ever been times where you've really felt like this isn't working or mm. this play is too painful in some way or, you know, your devotion to an ensemble idea makes me feel like mostly these things exist as sort of organisms, happy, well, not necessarily happy, but functioning organisms mm. of which you're a part. But have there ever been moments where you felt like, I've got to do this tomorrow and or tonight, and I and I yeah, and I mean I a lot of that. I think a lot of that. You, I think in every play I've ever done, there've been patches or, or evenings when I've really felt negative. I think you'd be a little bit crazy if that didn't ever happen. Right. But I think one of the things is just being over self conscious and kind of hating yourself. <laughs> that can creep in huh. when you just sort of you're just missing the target all the time and you're aware that you're missing the target. And, you know, I can get very temperamental that way. I can get very sort of, oh, the audience hates me and they don't get me and uh, and I can get very sort of silly. And then there are other times when another actor can rob you of power, which is really huh. difficult to deal with. How? Well, there are people who can hog the time, you know, I think the other reason I'm tying this all up, yeah. the orchestral idea is always the model for me. And why one of the reasons I loved Rudolf Nureyev was his musicality, his awareness of the shape of the music. And I think, you know, there's a bit of me that is a musician, you know, and I use words like music. It's, it's like, that's how I relate to things is musically. So, if I'm in a scene where somebody is taking a long, long time and indulging themselves in a speech and my character would interrupt, if I follow through with my character's impulse and my character's relationship to that character, I would shut them up or I would interrupt. And I have to there be robbed of right. my own autonomous power, right. robbed of my character. I have to distort my character in order to accommodate the fact that I don't interrupt, make myself into a different person. And that accumulatively can be soul-destroying. Mm. Is that more likely to come when you're playing a female character who exists in relationship Definitely. to the male character? I think that's right. I think you know, female actors traditionally have to learn a whole lot of different disciplines from male, you know, like how to fill right. silences, how to communicate when you have very few words, how to bring your energy on when you've sat in your dressing room for a long time and not been part of the play. These are all skills which a lot of men never have to yeah. work on yeah. or major players don't have to work on. So that kind of mind bending that you have to do, you know, we sort of sadly, it's part of our makeup, part of what we have to do. Really, it's to do with who's got the baton. And a good director will, will make sure that the baton is passed to the right person at the right time. But if someone's holding the ball, if you want the sort of football metaphor, sure, you know, someone's sure. clinging onto the ball Pass and nobody can get ball, in. Mate. It's very, very soul-destroying. Yeah. And you do need a director, again, the exterior person who's out there saying, it's not making sense because it's not just about that one character. Yeah. I wonder how much of your feeling about your part in the orchestra, the ensemble, your your sense of being part of something much bigger than you comes from your early days when you worked with those great socially conscious companies of the 70s, like Joint Stock 
and you work for John McGrath's 784, 784 legendary yeah. 784, named yeah. after 7% of the population own 84% of the wealth, which yeah. would be a different oh, God, number now. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, sad, um, sad. But did that form, do you think, that sense of theatre being a collective and not being a vehicle for I one think or two that actors? happened earlier. I think that happened at drama school. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you find your shape, you know, and I think yeah. I sort of, I fitted that model. I think there was a year, two years above me at, at Lambda that was much more individual star, starry people were in that year. Now, whether that's the selection committee for that year favouring those sorts of actors or what we 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 had Ian Charlson. He was our only big star, obviously One of going the great, places. He was sort of my Barishnikov, uh, my my Nureyev. Your Nureyev. Yeah, he was. He, he was I, a I wonderful actor and a wonderful guy. God awful that both of our idols yes. got done in by AIDS. But AIDS. anyway, he he was the only one who sort of stood out very obviously. There was some lovely talents around, but a lot of the work we did was to do with creating peace as an ensemble, right. you know. And I learned that very early on, the satisfaction of fitting in and running with the baton when it's your turn and throwing it at someone else when it's their turn. Yeah. Team games, I mean, it's very it's very allied to football. You know, you have your place, you're vital. When the ball's with you, you yeah. do your thing, you pass it, you receive it, you're watching out for everybody else. That is very satisfying. Yeah. And it's more satisfying than standing there doing your own Of course. Thing. And when you see it done well, when you see the circuit board of that ensemble working in harmony, there's no, is there nothing more thrilling? Because yeah. you are watching, yeah. as you say, a sort of sport in real time. You're watching a story from beginning to end, and you're seeing a world in front of you that is mutually dependent, like... Like our world is. Like our world is. So I think Philida would have said this, you know, that what you try to put on stage is a possible world we can aspire to. Anyway. I've got, I can't got keep you go. any longer. Last one. Yeah. Last question. What do you still want from the theatre, Harriet? My God, of anybody who has devoured the sandwich of theatre. I can't think of anybody. I'm talking about sandwiches because you need to go and have one before your <laughs> next thing. But do you know what I mean? Your life has in many ways been indivisible from your life on stage. You know, yeah. it's been such a huge part of it. What do you still want from it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I love working with younger people. I mean, that I discovered, that was the joy of working in the House of Bernard Alba. And on telly and film, I've worked with very young women, particularly, or young men, but, but you know, just very nice to see and get to know and see that we have so much common ground, yeah. even though in the world out there I feel quite estranged from quite a lot of youth. And, you know, I realise I'm living in a very different bubble from them on the whole. But when we come to do the work, there's there's great commonality. So I would like to do more of that. But also on a quite superficial level, or is it, I would love to do something that is really funny. You know, like I would love to hear that roaring of laughter and do something completely sort of farcical or hilarious, you know. I just think... A particular play? Do you, do you no, think? I can't think of one, no, but no. I just... No, I can't think of parts or plays, really. But I just think that's the thing that would bring me right back into on stage, for you know, that would be so satisfying. There's nothing better than laughter, is there? You and we need it right now, oh my, my God. God. 
God, yes. This isn't necessarily a terribly funny play, but I remember seeing Steppenwolf do August Osage County. Did you see that? Yes, I did. You it's should not play. funny. You, it's not funny, but she's pretty funny, don't you think? The matriarch? Well, yes, but... She's but awful. But do you know what I'd also like to do? Because I've been offered a lot of awful yeah, matriarchs. Sure, sure, sure. I would also like to do somebody who isn't a mother. I'm not a right. mother. You know, the life experience is very different if you're not a mother. Your character is not seen through the filter of resentful daughters or jealous husbands or, you know, you're just a person in the world. I would like to have more parts that are like that because that, you know, in a way, having wanted to always play somebody to escape from me, I now want to play people who are closer to me because that's the message, you know, is that, again, breaking those barriers down. We're not all angry, bitter old women. I don't think those mothers are either, those horrible matriarchs I get asked to play. I think quite a lot of them are projections by playwrights at a certain stage in their life who are sort of stuck in a form of blame of their parents or something. You know, I think we're very unkind to our parents. We (laughs) demand far too much of them, and mothers in particular. And when I think of succession, for instance, the number of times I got, oh, God, I understand why those children are the way they are. Now I've seen you. And you go, but you've seen Logan Roy, Brian Cox for every episode for, (laughs) you know, three and a half or four seasons. And you're not blaming him for how they are. You know, the mother gets the blame so much of the time. And that's because we expect our mothers to be perfect. We don't expect our fathers to be perfect in the same way. Our, Our mothers are there for us. They're there to feed us and boost us and unconditionally love us. And if they fall short of any of that, they're demons, you know? And yeah. I, I find that really hard to swallow. Yeah. And I have to play that. Yeah. So it's time for me to curate a Harriet Walter <laughs> limited season, because you don't want to do a long run. A comedy version of Macbeth on, <laughs> on ice. <laughs> Thank you so, Thank so you. much, Harriet, for giving me your incredibly precious time. That was great. Thank you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, there she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Dame Harriet Walter has left the stage door. What a treat to sit down and talk to Harriet. How generous she was, not just with her time, of course, but how open and honest and fun and funny and great. Oh, she's been one of my heroes on stage for ages. It's just such a lovely thing to be able to meet and chat and... How interesting to discover that despite all the accolades that have come her way as an actress over her gilded career, she's so committed to being an ensemble member, so uninterested in, as she called it, Harriet shows off. (laughs) Though, as I said before, and I will repeat, you could just put that on the poster, Harriet shows off, and I, for one would be in line to buy my ticket. 
she was great and i can't thank her enough for giving me that time especially as afterwards she got a parking ticket and it took some time for me to um relieve her of that burden so thank you for putting up with my bumbling amateurishness and the frankly punitive parking regulations of queen's park thank you harriet thank you also to my brilliant producer, Ben Backhouse, who does extraordinary work putting this stuff together every week, and to the musicians, Iggy and Phoebe Cake, and thank you to the stage manager, and thank you to you for listening. Oh, listen, I know I've asked you this before, but if you haven't already done so, could you rate? Could you review? Could you subscribe? Listen, what what can I tell you? It's basically in Podland. This is all this is huge so rating reviewing subscribing i don't mind if you use a pseudonym and do it all over again i'm pretty sure i'm not supposed to be saying that but come on let's get creative a few different dramatic personae you could just plead perhaps when i'm in court for pod fraud that it was just theatrical characterization i don't know uh next week next week I've got a huge treat for you. He was the artistic director of the Royal Court. He is the upcoming director of the theatrical extravaganza that will be the stage production of one of the hottest intellectual properties in entertainment. (laughs) Is that enough of a tease for you? Yeah, he's going to be helming, directing the stage production of Game of Thrones. That's right. And he is the brilliant, brilliant director, Dominic Cook. Join me next week for my chat with Dominic Cook. I really look forward to seeing you then. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. Stage, 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 stage,